Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's been a, it's, it's been a real privilege uh, to lead over the last seven years. God's done a lot, and God is going to continue to uh, do a lot in us as a church. And it's not just a, uh, uh, you know, stopgap this period. I, I think, uh, I think for you as a church, God's going to continue to do some great things over the next uh, few weeks and months. Uh, and. Um, just to say as well, actually on Friday, I don't, our sabbatical doesn't start Friday, but we fly uh, out to Uganda on Friday and a team's coming uh, with us the next day. We go out the day before them, uh, Owen and Nay are coming out. So please be praying for them. They're with us until the 17th of uh, July and then they fly back and we start our sabbatical then. So yeah, value your prayers for that. But God's been revealing more of his presence here this morning, hasn't he, amongst us? Has people felt God's presence with them this morning? Yeah, lots of nodding out there in agreement. Yeah, God is good. And God wants to speak to you afresh this morning through his word, the Bible, as I share this morning. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And he wants to speak into your heart so that it can change your thinking and in turn, change the way that we live. And the passage that we're going to look at today has literally shaped this world over the last three and a half thousand years. It's been the bedrock of laws and our moral compass of the English people for the last 1,500 years. Up until, that is, the 1960s, where people thought they knew better and began to deviate from these teachings to our detriment. It has to be said with all these uh, social changes that have happened that have come with sugar-coated lies that have actually led to the destruction and destroying of our uh, people today. It's taken away from their life, not given to it. Jesus said these words, and they'll appear on the screen behind me, the devil He says a thief, but he means a devil as he's speaking there, so I'll just put it simply for you. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life, life in all its fullness. And sadly, we are seeing the fruit of four generations of of people that have deviated from God's word. And we're seeing the mess of that all around us. We're seeing that destruction. We're seeing that stealing of people's life, that robbing of people's life. Ken last week reminded us that we need to sieve any culture, and particularly our own culture, through the biblical sieve. And the passage that we look at today is the moral teaching, if you like. This is a moral sieve that we are called to um, sieve our culture with. And we're going to see how today, how God is the one who redeems our life. He draws us near to himself in love, and his love should lead to our transformation. For we are redeemed and transformed by the love of God, which is the title of my message. So if you've got your Bible, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 19. If you haven't, it will appear on the screen behind me. It says this. I'm just going to read the first nine uh, verses and then I'll summarize the uh, rest of 19 and we'll come on to 20 in a, in a minute. It says this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came 
into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Raphidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came down, came and called to the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever." And then God gives some instructions about the people preparing themselves over uh, the next few days. Uh, if you're wondering about why it talks about not going near women, it's not because sex within marriage is dirty or anything like that. It's in line with uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 about focusing on preparing yourself for God, devoting yourself to prayer. And then God does appear in thunder and lightning and all uh, uh, that... that um, uh, sort of supernatural activity on the mountain, and there's warnings about not going near the mountain. Actually, Tom read it for us in, uh, uh, from Hebrews uh, earlier uh, at the beginning of uh, this meeting. So, on the third new moon, it starts with, since they had celebrated Passover and they had left Egypt. Let's not overlook the fact that was 49 days, and we looked at a few Sundays ago about how uh, long that may have seemed to the Israelites at that time. But that week becomes known as the Feast of Weeks. And in that week, from that time onwards, they celebrate the Passover. How appropriate is that, that they celebrate the, um, oh, the, the Pentecost, sorry, not the Passover, they, they celebrate Pentecost. How appropriate is that, that those weeks after Passover, that, that same period of time, that they come to the mountain, they celebrate that, and they meet with God in a greater measure. The same time period that the early church, after Christ died on the cross as their Passover lamb, as our Passover lamb too, he, that, that, that same time period then the Holy Spirit was poured out on his church in greater measure. Hallelujah. Now, you may not have realized this when I read uh, these verses to you. I didn't first time around, but verses 4 to 6 are some of the most important words in the Old Testament. Ross Blackburn says, These verses are, in effect, Israel's mission statement defining Israel's purpose as the people of God. Dumbrell writes, The history of Israel from this point on is in reality merely a commentary on the degree of fidelity to which 
Israel adhered to this. How closely they stuck to the, this, uh, these words of God is what they were judged on, he's saying there. So let's look at them in more detail. It says this in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Hallelujah. Notice how God rescues his people before he demands anything from them. He draws them to himself before he says, can you do this? Alec Matoya says on this, the grace of God precedes the law of God. His grace reaches out to save, and it is those whom he has saved that he reveals his law. The same is true for you and for me. You see, you don't need to get yourself sorted before you come to God. In fact, you can't get yourself right with God by yourself. Just like the Israelites couldn't get themselves out of Egypt without God delivering them, you can't get yourself right with God. We all, the Bible is clear, need Jesus. The only one who ever lived that perfect life, fully pleasing God. And he willingly went to the cross. He died on the cross for you and me to take on himself our sin, our rebellion, our going against what God has said, our ignoring of the living God who created us. Jesus receives as our Passover lamb the punishment for that sin, which, which actually enslaves us. It has power over our life. And we, through faith in him, we get forgiveness. We get made righteous, thanks to Jesus. We get brought to God as his children, his treasured possession. John 1 makes it clear. It no longer matters whether you are Jew or a Gentile. That's not the issue anymore. It's whether you come to Christ or not is the key thing. And we respond to God's love demonstrated to us in Christ by surrendering our lives to him, putting our faith in him, and uh, our love is demonstrated through faith and obedience, as we looked at the other uh, week. Jesus says clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15 and if you are here today or if you're watching online and you've never given your life to Jesus, then, and you're there and you're thinking, actually, I want to surrender my life to Jesus today, then please just pray this prayer in your heart along with me. God knows what you're thinking, so just pray this in your heart. Just say, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me enough to send Jesus to die on the cross for me. Please forgive me of all the things that I've done wrong that offend you. And through the power of your spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, please help me live the rest 
of my life for you. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please come and see me afterwards. I'd love to give you uh, this little book here to explain more about your journey of faith. If you're watching online, please contact the office. We'd love to help you in your journey of faith as well. But you see, Israel was rescued by God before they're told how to live for God. And God then reaffirms their special status, their treasured possession. He'd already set, you know, chosen Abraham, their forefather, and, and reaffirmed his covenant to Isaac and then to Jacob. And so he's reaffirming their specialness to him. Terry Virgo says, Yahweh remained God of the whole world, yet was in special relationship with Israel, not as an end in itself, but ultimately for the sake of the nations. John Durham points out that Israel was supposed to be a kingdom run not by politicians depending upon strength and cunning, but by priests depending on faith in Yahweh, a servant nation instead of a ruling nation. And the ultimate fulfillment of what God says to the Israelites there is actually, again, seen in Christ. You find it in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10, which is true for all Christians, where he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Hallelujah. These are great words, aren't they? Great truths that God has done for us. And of course, one of the primary ways that you and I, as priests of God in Christ Jesus, can proclaim his excellencies is through worshipping, as we've done this morning, God, in spirit and truth, as John 4 makes clear to us, but also through us playing our part in the great commission of God to preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we will with Ben a bit later, and uh, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. Isn't it lovely to see that even in this passage, in the Old Testament, you can see God's grace and love at work drawing Israel before he calls them to obedience. And my friends, it's even better, even better for you than it was for them. Now, although our experience might not be as dramatic as the Sinai experience with all its um, supernatural activity going on there, for us in the New Covenant, we have the infilling of the Holy Spirit with that supernatural experience on the inside of us that actually gives us the power to live for God. It gives us the ability to fulfill what God has called you and I to do. Terry Virgo says, The law could only describe and indeed command the appropriate conduct for God's people. It could, it could not actually accomplish or produce it. You might think, well, why did God 
give the law then to the people? Well, Paul gives us the answer, the Apostle Paul gives us the answer of why the law was given to Israel before Christ was sent to Israel. It says this in Galatians 3. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But it couldn't, you see. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. In other words, the law makes us aware of our sin. It makes us aware of our need for Jesus' help and his forgiveness. You see, the Apostle James makes it even clearer for us, our need for Jesus, when he writes this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And of course, Jesus himself reminds us, doesn't he, that that, um, adultery and murder start as lust and hatred in our hearts. You see, you do realize, people sort of say, oh yeah, you know, uh, Jesus is much much nicer, isn't he? But actually, his standards are much higher because he takes the law, and rather than it just be an external thing, he applies it to our very heart. He speaks of, in the Sermon of the Mount, a righteousness that flows out of your heart and of my heart. He internalizes its demands. So as we look at these Ten Commandments, or as they're referred to in the passage, these ten words, um, let's remember that we don't do them to earn God's approval. They're supposed to drive us to Jesus, who has secured God's approval for us on the cross. They remind us of our constant need for him, for his forgiveness, and for his help. Yet we also recognize these are areas that the Holy Spirit is wanting to work in your heart and in my heart, changing us to be more like God in these ways and actually giving us the ability to become more like God in these ways. And one final thing that you may find helpful as I uh, read this, when you come to ancient laws like this, they weren't, they're not like our laws where you know, every eventuality is sort of written out in black and white for people to see and people get round it through different loopholes by saying, ah, I didn't mention this word. Actually, ancient laws, they were principles given that local elders could look at the principle and apply to the situation. So let's, let's read Exodus chapter 20. It should appear on the screen behind me as well. And God spoke... All these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I The Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or your sojourner which, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashing lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said, you speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Bad dad joke now, but so technically, Moses was the first man to download files from the cloud using a tablet. You can use that one with your kids on me. So I got the same groan from my wife when I, when I said it. So uh, uh, there you go. God himself speaks to, the people, speaks to Moses in the hearing of the people. And they were rightly terrified. They were rightly afraid. Yet through Christ, you and I can come into God's presence with confidence. Hallelujah. So let's look at these Ten Commandments as they've been, uh, as they're known as. No other gods before me. God must be the first in your heart, is what he's saying. He's your creator. He's the sustainer of your life, the one who holds your next breath in his hands. So it's right that he has that place. Are you structuring your life around the fact that God is first in your life. Whatever is first in your heart, actually the priorities of your life will fall around that. So if you look at your priorities, you will see what is first in your heart. Jesus could say, if anyone loves anyone else more than him, he is not worthy to be Jesus' follower. He must be first in your heart. Nor to idols bend a knee, as I was taught in a, in, a, in a kid's work. No other gods, basically, is what God is making clear in the second commandment. Remember, an idol isn't just something, uh, uh, an object that people bow down to. Jesus actually applies it to money. He applies it to uh, power and, and uh, position uh, and those sorts of things as well. Your reputation... Everything will find its rightful place if you've put God first in your life. 
If you have anything else there, basically, it is to the detriment of your life. It's not only wrong, it's to the detriment of your life. And God is a jealous God. Not like with some type of childish jealousy, oh, he's, he, he, you like him more than me. It's not like that. It's, it's actually his righteous anger at the fact that he is being robbed of his rightful place in your heart and my heart, if anything else is there. Now, about the bit about punishing children to the third and fourth generation, Douglas Stewart helpfully says, it does not represent an assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for the sins of a predecessor. Rather, if the children continue to do the sins their parents did, they will receive the same punishment as their parents. It's talking about God dealing with sin until that sin is fully dealt with. Thirdly, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That is, use it carelessly. Use it as a swear word, as people seem to do in our culture. You wouldn't do that to somebody you love. Or don't do it to God then. And in particular, in, in this context, it's, looking, it's talking about those who would uh, use God's name as an oath to say, yeah, I know, I swear by the Lord I'll, I'll do this, when actually they really didn't have any intention of doing it or they just, you know, just, just fickly change their mind. It's reminding them that God sees and God will hold them accountable for how they have used his name. Fourthly, keep a day a week holy. Not for just not working and for doing nothing, but for primarily Refreshing yourself, your family, your household in God. Spending time with him. That's why God, in his own words, declares that he took as long as six days to create the world and rest on the seventh. Because he could have done it instantly. Or I suppose he could have done it over millions of years if he wanted to. But he himself says he took the amount of time he took as a pattern for you and I to follow in. In the Old Testament, that day was Saturday that he rested. In the New Testament, as Tom referred to earlier, it sort of switches over to Sunday, the day that Jesus rose again. However, the Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans 14, verse 5, that it's the principle that matters, not the day itself. Fifthly, honour your father and mother. And as Ken pointed out last week, father and mother-in-law as well. It establishes parental authority over children whilst they're growing up. And also for grown-up adults, the need to honour your parent looks like making sure they're looked after in their old age. Something that Jesus himself picks up in Mark chapter 7, verses 10 to 13, if you're interested, you can look at it there. But as of time, I need to, need to carry on. Sixthly, murder. The taking of human life. We're not to murder. It's not talking about capital punishment. It's not talking about in war. It's not talking about self-defense. There are other principles in Scripture that the Bible teaches there. But outside of these, human Life is not our right or our choice to take. From conception to one's final breath and everything in between, human life is not something 
we have a right to take. It's a, it's a sad thing, isn't it, to see our nation, how far we have gone from God's standard in this area with our stance on abortion, with our stance on euthanasia and the promotion of, of, of that in the, the media and things like that. But God is clear. Human life is not within our right to end. And from the sanctity of life, God then moves on to the sanctity of marriage with the seventh commandment, adultery. Marriage is honoured by God and therefore should be honoured by all. And the breaking of marriage vows, and indeed, uh, if you do it in deed or in heart, is something the Bible says comes under God's judgment. The Bible is clear that sex is for within marriage only. Marriage between one man and one woman for life. That's what the Bible promotes and what the Bible confirms is the right way. Anything outside of these boundaries is not only wrong, but is detrimental to our life and to life itself, regardless of what society around us tells us. And why would you listen to society? It's in a mess, isn't it? It's in a total mess. Listen to God's word and you will have life. Life in all its fullness, as Jesus said. Eighthly, do not steal. You shall not steal. Whether it be from a big company, whether it be from a government, whether it be from an individual, whether they had it coming to them, whether everyone else is doing it, we as Christians do not steal things. We, we pay for it. We go about things through the right channels. Ninthly, do not bear false witness. In the passage in particular, it's talking about in court, that we don't lie when we're in court to get someone in trouble. But Jesus links this to lying and misleading words. He says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. He's talking about, again, a righteousness that comes from the heart, that we are truthful in our words because God is going to judge us for every word that has come out of our mouths. So let's make sure they're right before God. And then finally, do not covet. It's not just the sense of, oh, that looks nice, or your neighbor's got. You're allowed to look at things and think, that looks nice, I'd like something like that. But it's the longing for, it's the scheming for in your heart, for that which belongs to another. These 10 areas are non negotiable areas for Christians, for Christian morality. Jesus is the only person as well who fully kept all, all of them from his very heart as well as in deed. And um, he helpfully sums up the, the uh, Ten Commandments in the Great Commandment in the New Testament, and you find it in Matthew 22. He says this, he puts it in a, in a positive way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, and it covers the first four. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that covers the next six commandments in our passage. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. And thanks to Jesus' power, he 
through his Holy Spirit, we can actually put to death in our own heart the sinful nature that wants to give in to these areas from time to time. And we can be forgiven when we do fail in it because of Jesus' death. And his Holy Spirit actually wants to produce in you and me a righteousness that flows out from our hearts so that we choose to want to do these things as Jeremiah 31, 33 prophesies will happen in the new covenant. My friends, allow God to change your heart in these areas. Don't listen to society. Listen to the word of God. Give your energy to putting to death the things in your heart that go against this and for working with God to be more like him in this area, knowing that actually when you fail, as we all do from time to time, that thanks to Jesus, there is grace and forgiveness and we can come back to God and receive fresh help to live for him. You see, God is the one who redeems your life. He draws you near to himself in love. And then his love is the thing that transforms you. For we in Christ are redeemed and transformed by the love of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So live a life of love, my friends, as you abide in the love of God. Remember, to love Jesus means to obey his commands. And he's helpfully summed them up for us in the Great Commission and the Great Commandments. If you do these, you do all that God is calling you to do. And as we live them, we are positively living out the Ten Commandments that God has for us. Amen? Amen.